Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm having Matt stay up here for a second just because um, after I had a chance to preach through Mark uh, 3, um, verse 15, 14 and 15 last time, uh, Matt had made a comment. the, the verse goes, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that he might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And I focused, if you remember, on what it means to be with Jesus, uh, to be with Jesus before we do anything for Jesus. Uh, Matt came up to me afterwards and said, you, you know, you didn't really mention verse 15 very much, uh, which is, and have authority to cast out demons. And I said, yeah, man, I, I don't have that much time. I, I didn't really get a chance to address everything about demon possession and casting out demons. Um, knowing that uh, eventually this passage was coming up. Um, and so Matt started to share some things that had happened to him uh, over the past uh, few weeks. And if we could have more time uh, even further before that. Um, and I thought it would be important enough uh, to just let him share a little bit about that. Um, I'm assuming that most people don't have as much experience in this supernatural realm. So um, really just three uh, questions that I'm going to lead Matt uh, through as far as what had happened and how did he encounter Jesus and what happened afterwards. So um, for those that don't know Matt, um, just for the sake of time, this is Matt Ragosa. He's been with our church for about two and a half years. Uh, He's been involved with uh, uh, many different ministries, um, but he just uh, left his job uh, this past summer to start uh, uh, school at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, uh, studying towards his master's in divinity, and um, he has also felt called and committed to be at our church and be involved with a small group uh, while he's going through uh, seminary. Um, so, Matt, um, maybe the first thing I can just ask you is, what was, can you, can you describe to us uh, what your life was like uh, before you had this encounter with Jesus recently? Uh, so, I think I would say, I would have described my life as normal for the longest time. Like, you know, everyone gets sad, everyone gets depressed, and at times, um, things can happen in life, and you, you can struggle with stress and anxiety. Um, but what happened for me is constantly on a day-to-day basis for the past a uh, few years probably at least, and even since I was really, really young. Um, particularly in the past uh, few years, I felt anxiety every single day where sometimes um, it would be hard for me to even breathe. Um, I would just be constantly stressed at the smallest things, like being one minute late to something would make me extremely stressed. Uh, I would just be sad for no reason, just like wake up and just like, oh, like I'm extremely sad, I am almost depressed, I'm actually depressed. and. Um, I, um, what I realize now is that I had this crippling anxiety that I carried me every day of my life, really. Um, so much that um, even though I could describe myself as an extrovert, it would um, make it really difficult for me to be around people. Um, where even though I knew, I knew people loved me and they cared for me, like, I felt these walls come up so, so frequently. And I just, like, um, and frequently in um, many situations, in no- normal everyday situations, and that sense of fight or flight would come up, and I would all the blood would rush into the front of my brain, and I couldn't think think well. Um, I could think logically, maybe, but I couldn't really feel emotions very well. Um, and so, what I would say is, I had this like overwhelming sense of anxiety and sadness that overshadowed all of my life. Um, whereas the Bible says, you know, there might be, you know, there's joy and there's peace that Jesus gives us. Um, I, that was kind of hard for me to to experience because. Anxiety overshadowed every single little thing in my life. 
Um, and there's a scripture that I want to read because it makes me, it gives an idea of how I felt. Um, and it, it's part of it, so part of it applies, but part of it doesn't. So this is 1 Samuel 16, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. I, um, so the spirit of the Lord did not depart from me. I'm Christian. We know that from the New Testament. But what it felt like is that something was tormenting me all the days of my life. Uh, anxiety, depression, even suicidal thoughts at times. Um, where the only thing, really the only thing that helped me was worshiping God, praying, and reading the Bible. Not, not much else. So if you, if you know me and my spiritual disciplines, that's kind of the main reason I was praying all the time. It's because I was always anxious, not because um, I'm just that holy or whatever. Um, yeah. How would you explain, Matt, then, um, what Jesus did for you? So... Um, so one day I just, I just had this complete emotional breakdown and I asked God, uh, what's going on, God? Like, the, what happened just, just this night like, does not explain why I, don't, I felt emotionally numb and depressed and, and just ready to take my life. Um, or more like not ready to take my life, but asking him to take my life for me. Because uh, it's just so, so awful. So um, when, I, when I shared this with some friends at seminary uh, about what would happen, and we kind of came to the conclusion that it was something spiritual, some spiritual attack. And so uh, I think they try to live by the verse, uh, Mark 16, Mark chapter 16, verse 17, and it goes, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. So what my friends did is they, in Jesus' name, they cast out spirits on me, they cast out demons um, that had been tormenting me. And since then, I've been uh, completely free. Yeah. Amen. That is, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, really, from when I heard that, I just wanted to kind of have you explain more because, again, I think probably many of us have not had that kind of experience. Uh, and since you kind of went into uh, what your life was like after, uh, I don't know if you have anything more to share about that or if you want to go into your even prior experience. Yeah. So, so one thing I, I forgot to mention right now is that even before this experience, about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I've been seeing counseling for four months earlier in this year. So I believe counseling is important, and that's something that's I, I am still going to go to, um, and it and it helped me. There's real progress made, but this was different from that. Um, and I and even though I feel free now, I'm still going to go to counseling. But my my life has completely changed. Like whereas you know you read in the Bible how uh, people have new life. Oh, I feel like I have new life now. Um, I could taste it every now and then, but now every day is, is I have that joy and that peace that is described in the Bible. Uh, whereas I couldn't, I couldn't say I had that before. Um, I was confused and asking God, God why, why is my life not like it, the way it says in the Bible? And so, whereas um, anxiety may have overshadowed my life and, and, and everything before and, and sadness, now it's joy does it. Even if I, even I, even if I feel you know, sad or anxious a little bit, like the joy that comes out of my mouth and from my heart is just so much greater and it's just so, more much, so much more overwhelming than what I had felt before. Thanks so much for sharing, Matt. Uh, is it okay if I pray with you and uh, we'll close this time? 
Father, thank you so much for um, what the work that you've done in Matt's life, um, in even uh, some places that he may not have expected to encounter you, especially uh, with regard to uh, having uh, an evil spirit cast out or um, a spirit of anger. We thank you, Father, that uh, you have power and control over this world. And I thank you that you revealed that to Matt. And so we just pray that he would continue to live in this freedom. Uh, we pray that as he's given testimony to this uh, before this body of Christ, that we could continue to encourage him and pray for him. Uh, we continue also uh, to pray for those in need of healing uh, in our congregation. And I know that our sister Leah is on many of our hearts. And we continue to pray, uh, Father, that uh, you would be able to heal her uh, completely of uh, what uh, medical experts may say cannot be. Uh, but we also continue to pray that she would be faithful to you uh, in your calling for her life, and especially as it may impact her parents, uh, that we continue to pray for their salvation. Uh, thank you, Father, for this privilege uh, to preach from your word. I pray that you would continue to consecrate uh, what I say uh, to be able to uh, really lift up uh, this treasure uh, that we have in your word and in the life of Jesus. Uh, we pray, Father, that we would find life and that we would find grace and we would find mercy to help us in times of need. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, Matt. So uh, last week, uh, the story, if you remember, Pastor Chris talked about was how Jesus uh, had control over the wind and the waves. And with one word, you could just stop the wind and the waves. And this is really a continuation. It's kind of tied together with that story. Uh, just as we saw Jesus having authority over nature, uh, this story that follows right afterwards in chapter 5 is talking about how Jesus has authority over the supernatural world and even Satan. So uh, one thing we can note is that um, one word that is uh, repeated a lot throughout these 20 verses is the word beg or begging. And I, it, it puzzled me uh, that it continued throughout the whole passage. Um, I think in some translation, the word uh, one time is used adjure, which just means beg again. So I th it was five times that I counted. And it <clears throat> seems like there's something to that uh, in what uh, the Spirit may want us to understand about this passage. As we think about even that word, beg, when, when was the last time that you begged for something? And it, it, as we think about that, uh, I, I think the best way to lay out the groundwork for this passage is I think this really shows us three ways that we can beg Jesus for things. Uh, three ways. I think you see that through uh, three different situations or characters. The first is the demonic or the demon-possessed man who begged Jesus to have mercy. And we see that in the first 13 verses. Uh, the second uh, way that we beg Jesus is we see the villagers or the townspeople. And we see that uh, in verse 17, they actually beg Jesus to go away. And then the third way uh, that we uh, can beg Jesus is the man who was healed in verse 18. He actually begs Jesus to be with, he begs to be with Jesus. 
So in, in thinking about this, uh, I want to unpack it th- this way. If we start with this first uh, story in the first 13 verses, the demon-possessed man, he begs Jesus to have mercy, okay? And as, uh, you know, I don't know how many people, what you guys, uh, your stance is on Halloween, um, we, we, we have our, our kids, they, they are teaching each other to look away from all the scary things, to not have scary dreams at night. So they don't know what really Halloween is about because they're always told to look away by their other siblings, so they, they can't see anything. But this is like uh, kind of a very scary story that is really kind of uh, uh, appropriate, I guess, for this season, that these, these are the tombs that really were considered haunted back in the day. That people, this is where people believed were the demons lived, and the story seems to uh, affirm that. Um, in fact, if you look at the story a little more carefully, uh, it doesn't say anything about the disciples ever getting out of the boat, does it? It was just Jesus. And I think the rest of them are like, so we just got through the storm, and now you're taking us to this haunted uh, tomb place, and Jesus gets out, and immediately there is a man with an evil spirit, a demon-possessed man that is running at him. So the disciples presumably are just staying in the boat while Jesus gets out. And while he gets out, um, thinking about just even horror movies, um, and again, I, I, I don't I, I haven't watched any horror films since we got married um, because my wife uh, won't, won't have that, so I'm not going to play any horror movies or anything. But if you think about, for those of you who are sinful enough to watch horror movies, uh, the, <clears throat> what's so funny? Uh, um, so the, you, when you watch them, there's this usual progression that you know, there's, there's this scary monster or this evil thing, and it's up to the people to figure it out, right? It's, it's usually the one that doesn't, you know, have uh, illicit relationships or, you know, is the, the one figure that makes it to the end that has the wits to outsmart the evil spirit and, and can make it to the end, uh, to survive to the end, right? Um, that's a very typical way of uh, the, the horror movie plot, that it's up to the people to find the solution. But in this story... No one, no person can find a solution to this demon-possessed man. If you look at it, I mean, he was bound with shackles and chains. No one could even bind him because he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one could subdue him. Day and night, he's crying out among the tombs and the mountains. He's cutting himself with stones. No one could do anything about this guy. Uh, In in the other Gospels, we we know that he, he doesn't even wear clothes. Right? So this is who meets Jesus immediately out of the boat, and the disciples are watching, perhaps in horror. Here, the only one that can solve this problem is Jesus. And as we look at this further, it's even the demons, when we look at the word begged, it's actually the demons in the man who are begging Jesus. It's pointing and telling us that even the demons have to beg Jesus for permission to do anything. It's, it's never the other way around. Jesus never has to ask them for permission, right? They're, they're, they're begging Jesus, right? Uh, the, the, the man that is possessed by uh, the demons, you know, comes and uh, falls down before Jesus, indicating some submission, and is begging Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country, uh, like the demonic man, when, when we 
Think about what we were like before Christ saved us. We were wrecked by sin, and when we needed it at one point to beg him for salvation. Jesus is showing us that he is stronger than Satan. You know, if you remember a couple chapters ago, Jesus gave the example of having to tie up the strong man that is Satan. Jesus here is that, that person, that can, the only one that can tie up the strong man. In, in fact, the, the word that is used, uh, the phrase that is used here by the demons, you know, the demons are saying, uh, I adjure you by God, you know, before that, they, they know who he is. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That word torment is interesting too because that's signifying eternal punishment that uh, some of you uh, may recognize. Uh, this is, <clears throat> you know, often people talk about uh, you know, believing in uh, a God of love in the New Testament. But, but in the New Testament, in Revelations 20.10, it talks about the devil uh, the, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this is what, uh, the, the para, what this is referencing, that the demons inside the man don't want to be sent to this lake of fire before their time. And as we think about that, as Christians, what, what we can, uh, for those of you who uh, follow Christ, who believe in him uh, as your Lord and Savior, we can see that even though we may not be more powerful than the demons, because this, this demon overpowered this man, um, the demons still had to beg Jesus. And, and what I've been taught, and I understand, is that though we may not be more powerful than the demons, we, we have authority over the demons by Jesus' name. And so the, the kind of application question that I'll leave with each section here is, why are you afraid? Why are we afraid of anything? I, my, my kids, uh, they've gotten the habits, uh, the two middle ones, Zach and Hopi, they take turns in the middle of the night running into our room and jumping into our bed. And they, they cling to us talking about this monster, monster that is around. And they, you know, we, we keep assuring them, look, all, all three of you guys, you guys sleep in one room together. How scared can you guys be? You guys are two feet away from each other. Why are you running into our room? And, and yet... The fear that we have often is, is just as rooted, not in reality. Um, here, if Jesus isn't afraid, why should we be? If these demons have to beg Jesus for permission, why are we afraid of any evil spirits? If Jesus, if we remember from the last story, can sleep through the storm because he trusts his Father's will and control, why are we so afraid? If God is for us, who can be against us? As Scripture says, if the Lord is our, your helper, what can man do to you? Jesus has control over the demons, over the demonic forces, over the evil forces. If we think about what people usually fear most, Jesus 
even has control over that. He has control over death, right? He conquered death. That's what we believe. We also know that Jesus healed out of mercy and love. That it was at the end that we'll see that Jesus it was, had mercy on this crazed, naked man running towards him. And as he granted these demons' requests to go into the pigs, he, he allowed the people to see tangibly that the demons had left this man, gone into the 2,000 pigs, and that he had power over all of that. And so because of that mercy and that love, I, I think it's important for us to know that Jesus is someone that we can beg to have mercy upon us. And he grants that even to the demons here. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a promise that the Lord has for us. I was so fearful uh, a couple weeks ago uh, with some tax deadlines that I had that I was begging God, asking God for help. And God provided and reminded me uh, that uh, I think what, what's very fearful for me is feeling like I'm having to deal with all this by myself. And he reminded me that he gave me a spouse that I can work with, that she's kind enough to uh, sit with me in a cafe to help me work through that. And, and then the Lord was even more gracious in allowing me to, to put some funds into this account that I hadn't realized was needed in order to pay uh, for those taxes. And when I look back on how stressed and fearful I was, and I think back on it, it really wasn't anything to be fearful of. And yet, when we get into these situations, we so much more fear the unknown more than we trust God's control over the unknown. Second point uh, is this, that we can see from the villagers. Another way to beg Jesus is to beg Jesus to go away. Like the disciples, the villagers were also afraid. They, the disciples in chapter 4 saw oh, just a word from Jesus stopped the wind and the waves. And here the villagers saw just Words from Jesus freed this man from demons. And like the demons, the villagers also begged Jesus, but it's not for mercy, it's to beg him to go away. The, these uh, herdsmen that uh, took care of these pigs likely had investors from the town. This is big business. 2,000 pigs back then, you know, think about all the uh, amount of uh, money that could be made uh, that these herdsmen had to likely tell their investors from the town what had happened. They didn't want to be responsible. And so when the villagers or the investors came to see the 2,000 pigs, their, their investment all into, drowned into the sea, they started to fear and, and what they feared was losing control. What, what they feared was things that they didn't understand. Yet they refused to consider the possibility, the possibility 
that Jesus might be someone worth believing in and trusting after what they saw. Furthermore, they, they didn't really have, show any compassion towards this man. This man who all their lives they had seen bound with shackles and breaking them, cutting himself, wailing. When he is freed from all that, no one th- seems to have any sort of joy over that. Nor do they think about bringing their other demon-possessed friends or their sick for the one that showed that he had power to heal. But instead, they, they chase the healer away. Mark 4 talks about those that may indeed see, but not see. And they may indeed hear, but not understand. It seems to perfectly describe these villagers. That, that there's, these villagers seem much more comfortable with evil and demon possession than with Jesus as the one who can cast all that out. And before I jump into even more, I think it begs a question to stop and and just think about this. Wait, isn't there any parallels that we have with these villagers? When I think about this desire when we walk through malls or I think shopping online that we we want more and more stuff and we're com- very comfortable with wanting more and more stuff but we're okay with having less and less Jesus as Jesus is crowded out of our lives that, that we're all fired up about asking Jesus to come into our lives but we're also okay with asking him to leave our lives when our comfort is threatened or when we suffer for following him that many of us were so much more comfortable with, you know, the, the season that's upon us or, you know, being immersed in uh, binging on the latest show than, than we are with following and obeying his word. That, that the villagers actually see Jesus as more dangerous than the demons. And they're actually right about that but they're afraid of Jesus. It's in our world, you know, we, we, uh, the things that we fear, does that drive us to distractions that are so plentifully available to us that it's so much easier for us to go to Facebook than to put our face in God's book. That the, the, the time that we spend on Instagram versus the time that we spend knowing that we have God's own breathed words to us that are meant to be seeds planted in good soil, that we're okay with not letting the word be planted into our hearts for days, for weeks, for months. The Old Testament actually doesn't have much about demon possession. In fact, outside of the Gospels, the New Testament doesn't really talk that much about demon possession either. It's, it's only, it seems like, in the Gospels, uh, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, where we see 
when, wherever Jesus is physically present, it seems like all hell breaks loose and all the demons recognize immediately who he is. I, I think more typically, Satan doesn't have to use things like demon possession to get our attention, to, to get us into his traps. It seems like he is often able to use much more subtle techniques just to deceive us. Because as I've been delving into, how often are we okay with being numb and blind to Jesus and the spiritual warfare that's around us? Because we, in our society, are so distracted. There's so many things available to us. If we don't want to think about our own lives, we can distract ourselves so easily, right? There's so many things available to us. The, the, the devil doesn't really have to do too much to distract us or to allow us to just destroy ourselves and to be kept away from the source of life. Uh, my youth pastor uh, told a story recently of how uh, my former youth pastor uh, he and his family uh, spent some time living among the tribes in Southeast Asia. And one of these tribes that had been so isolated from the world were given for the first time access to internet as a way of trying to help them uh, be more connected with the world. And what she told me was that that opened up a whole new spiritual realm of warfare among these people when they discovered access to the demonic presence things that were of the occult through the internet. Uh, uh, some of the younger folk got hooked onto pornography as a result of having unfiltered internet access. It, it, it seemed like many of us would much rather be in that kind of state where we would rather numb ourselves with these things of the world that are leading to death rather than being with Jesus and letting him fill us. That for many of us, it, it's too scary or hard to be lonely, to have to sit with our own thoughts. And we don't want Jesus to disturb our superficial comfort. I, I know for uh, those of my married friends who have struggled uh, in their marriages of demonstrating a Christ-like love for those who are believers, or even how to make marriage work. It's something that we realize quickly for those who are married that we're not in control of this, that we, we need help. Similarly, I think for those who are single, I think, it, uh, it's, I think we can empathize with a, a fear of singleness. And yet, are these not the things that God is in control of, that, that we can't even save ourselves. What makes us think that we can control these things enough to, to fear or worry about them? This demon-possessed man came to Jesus naked and flailing away, begging. And that seems to be the posture, instead of these villagers, that we can uh, seek to emulate what it means to beg Jesus for mercy, and not to go away. Right before I came here, I realized that my phone was out of battery, so I was charging it, and I got here, and I realized I didn't have my phone, and I, I had a, 
like a slight moment of a panic attack. Like, you know, what if something happens during the service and they can't get a hold of me? And then I realized, you know, that, that was one of my points here. You know, do, do you think, can, can, can you guys ever be without your phone even for like 30 minutes? Or for those who have your phone with you, would you dare to turn it off even for like 30 minutes? Or even put it on airplane mode if you can't even turn it off? Or, or, or even put it on silent where you can't receive any vibrations of any messages coming in? It, it's just another indication of the ways that we distract ourselves from letting Jesus being the one that can fill us rather than us directly or indirectly telling him to go, go away from our lives. A follow-up application question is, are you afraid of the wrong things? Are you afraid of losing the wrong things? I was talking to a friend of mine that uh, uh, in his law practice after uh, losing uh, significant amounts of money in his last two trials has such a scar that he, he doesn't want to do any more trials ever again. I think of, in, in my own life, uh, how difficult uh, it was a struggle in this transition to come to this church and uh, move into pastoral ministry. It was such a struggle for me to give up all of my legal cases that potentially were uh, income generating. But it's proven over time that that was wise and, and necessary for me to do. You see, the villagers here were, again, more concerned about losing money than they were about gaining eternal life. They were just seemingly about the money. Uh, I don't want to dwell too much into this, but some of you who are kind of more savvy in terms of what's going on in the news probably know, like, LeBron James recently once tweeted that Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. A Martin Luther King quote, right? And I know that there's been an uproar over uh, his uh, current comments with regard to uh, China and the NBA. And think about uh, when I was growing up, uh, some of you may relate to this kind of culture where I kept asking my mom when I was, uh, I think, in junior high or high school, when my friends were going out to play basketball outside, why did I have to stay at home to study my textbooks from the past year to review what I had learned and start getting the new math and science books to get ahead of my classmates for the next year when all my other friends were just playing basketball outside? Why? I kept asking, why, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to study so hard? And the response eventually, I think, that was filtered down was, so that you could get into a good college. So then the question is, so why do I have to study all this, you know, to get into a good college? And the response was, so that you can get a good job. And then the question, so why do I have to do all of this and study and get in a good school to get in a good uh, college and, and, and get a good job? It's so that you can afford to buy a house. So, so then why do I have to do all this and then get a, get a house? It's so that you can find a spouse. So why do I have to do all this and, and then get a spouse? so that you can have kids. And then what are you gonna do with these kids? Oh, so that they can begin to study hard and start this process over again, right? So, so God says in Hebrews 11, he's pleased by faith that not only believes he exists, but also believes that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 
that believes that he, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And I think as we think about choices that we make in life, I think we have to really dig down, in spite of the best intentions of our family members, what, why are we doing what we're doing? Is it really like these villagers? Are you really just about the money? And you call yourself a Christ follower? We, we may say we want to go to heaven, but we don't like what's guaranteed for all Christ followers, which is suffering, right? We just want to go to heaven, but we don't want Jesus really as Lord. We just want him as Savior. Do you know that there's no such thing in Scripture as a lukewarm Christian? Do you know that doesn't exist? Revelations 3.16 So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's a scary verse. That doesn't sound like someone who's saved when Jesus says he's going to spit you out of your mouth, his mouth. And it convicts me when I think about how excited I am to finally be able to move in the neighborhood near here. And I start getting so attached to our new house and park and, and a place for the kids to grow up. And then I remember, this is not my home. This is temporary. Why, why am I spending so much time caring about my comfort and security here? This, this convicts me as I say this to you. And you know what? Of, of all the scary things we've talked about in this kind of horror film of a story, you know what the scariest thing about this story is? The scariest thing is that when you ask Jesus to leave, he will. The Son of the Most High God won't force you to be with him. That's scary. When we think about the choices that we make, when we directly or indirectly tell Jesus to leave our lives, He will leave. When have you turned Jesus away? We know that his promise is that he will always be with us. And yet, we can interfere with that process if we are so inundated with this world that we become lukewarm. And we don't allow him to speak to us in a way that we are actually being with him and following him. This third point is this. The healed man, in verse 18, his way of begging Jesus is to be with Jesus. He begs Jesus to be with him. This is really puzzling because if you look at what Jesus' response is, Jesus says no. And the question is, why doesn't Jesus let this man be with him? Why does Jesus answer the demon's request to go into the pigs? He he grants the villager's request to go away. But this man who he just healed is asking him to be with him, and Jesus says no. It's not in the text, but commentators give three possible reasons I thought was helpful. I like one more than the other. The first is that uh, if he had told, uh, if if this man had gone around... um, telling people what Jesus had done, 
um, which is what Jesus tells him to do. It wasn't a threat to Jesus being able to continue to do ministry before his time uh, of crucifixion. Whereas, if you remember in chapter 1, he had strictly commanded a leper to not tell anyone, even though the leper didn't listen. And, and that ended up causing him uh, such turmoil that he couldn't minister there anymore. And there was a danger of the people all getting so excited about making him a, uh, an earthly king and a messiah before doing what he was called to do, which is to be crucified, to be able to pay the price for our sins is what he came to do and to set us free. Uh, Second reason potentially is that Jesus, remember, healed out of mercy and love. And so this man, unlike the disciples who he had to call to leave their families, this man had already been ostracized and had left his family. And out of compassion, Jesus was telling this man to go home for the first time, to be restored to his family to his community after being ostracized. Uh, the third reason is that Jesus saw that this man had been with him already. That since he had already been with him, remember, he, he was sitting at Jesus' feet. This is the posture of a disciple like Mary in the Mary versus Martha story, that he was already made to become a fisher of men. So now, Jesus can send him out to preach. And so then, I think uh, the application, and I want to be careful with this, because I don't want us to take shortcuts to what Jesus is telling this man. So uh, I'm going to say this, but I want to work our way up to this. Jesus tells this man to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. This third point is, uh, application is that Will you tell your friends how much Jesus has done for you? That we know this man went through three stages. That he was demon-possessed, then he had been with Jesus, and then he was, after being with Jesus, deeply believing and experiencing Jesus, kind of like uh, if any of you have been around a very hysterical, crying baby, uh, I have plenty of experience, along with many of the parents, when they're suddenly calm, It's like what happened with this man. All of a sudden, he's sitting there calm, quietly. And then Jesus says, you should turn you into an evangelist where people start marveling at your story of what Jesus did for you. So now go and fish, preach, make disciples. This man had been with Jesus first before telling others that this is the correct response of every true disciple, that this is the second half of discipleship. Um, that it's a simple witness, that this whole story foreshadows God's heart for everyone, that the gospel is for everyone, that he's saving not only the Jews first, but the Gentiles also, that this man was the first missionary to the Gentiles. It's saying at the end that he went to proclaim in the Decapolis. Deca just means ten. Polis just means city. Just to the other ten Gentile cities uh, that were freed from the Jews Uh, by the Romans, that this is where he was going to go to. In fact, some, uh, a pastor friend once uh, recently shared with me in Mark chapter 8, when we get to that, it talks about how a great crowd had gathered and some had come from far away before Jesus has compassion and wants to feed them. That this great crowd that came from far away, in all likelihood, really was this man telling his story to the Decapolis of what Jesus did for him. And this great crowd came to see who this Jesus was. When this man, who was naked and flailing, was dressed and in his right mind, 
simply telling of what the Lord did to him, to the Decapolis, this crowd came, like the healed, from this healed man, like the Samaritan woman at the well, if you remember that story, that just from his telling people to come and see who Jesus was, they all came. You know, uh, the final closing application point is this, that I think in this time that we've had in Mark, I think it's convicted me to a point of really trying to eliminate all uh, fascination or uh, time, uh, large amounts of time spent on uh, studying my fantasy sports team or um, uh, studying about the local sports team here um, or uh, spending so much time getting my news from social media or hearing what people are doing. But I realize that's only half the battle, that, that I still need to fill myself with Jesus in order to be with Jesus. I think of the things what Jesus would care about, and I, I think about the, the, the good problems that we have at our church as we celebrate our second anniversary, that we have small groups that are just too large, and that's a good problem to have. That if we want to follow the, the new commandment and the great commandments of loving one another, uh, having that take precedence over the great commission uh, in order to, to, to make disciples, uh, meaning that we love one another first before we do things like uh, marketplace evangelism or any type of evangelism, that we be with Jesus before we tell others about Jesus, that we would be looking at this as such an opportunity that instead of the temptation to just want to recruit small group leaders to come and lead, we would be continuing to pray to invest in those who are part of our community, that in time people would see that need to shepherd others, that these large small groups would organically start to see the value of uh, multiplying in order to care and shepherd uh, the people, and that we never have to turn away any new person that comes because our small groups are too big when they want to join a small group and be fed and grow in Christ. I think that um, for us as a church, what would it look like since this, it wasn't somehow intuitive for this man to just go out and tell others about his faith, that Jesus had to tell him to do that. And I think for some of us, I think the temptation is for evangelism to be like a spectator sport. You know, some people in our church are doing it, and I go to that church, so it kind of rubs off on me. But here, Jesus is saying, will you tell your friends how much he has done for you when you have first been with him? That when you are with Jesus, we know for, for those that have had that experience of teaching from God's word, you know that you're the one that benefits the most. I recently heard about two small group leaders when asked why did they want to lead small group, uh, they, they, their answer was that they wanted to, number one, see God more, and number two, they wanted to grow deeper in the word. I, th- I think those are the kind of small group leaders that we want to continue to cultivate here, that instead of, again, pressuring people to lead small groups, you want to see leaders with that kind of heart that see that it's such a privilege to be able to be with God when we are able to teach or help others grow in their faith. That, that when we are so desperate 
for Jesus, that we are begging for a desire even to be with him when we don't feel that. Uh, Serena was kind enough this morning uh, for me to just get away to have some time to be with Jesus. And it, it was, uh, you know, maybe it's just me that I have four young children that it's just so nice to get out of the house, but that to just be able to sit and just listen and hear from Jesus and to talk to him and to read from his word and to just get away and to let him kind of filter my thoughts. I, that, that's something that's so precious that we have that opportunity to, to have. And then it's funny, as soon as I leave where I, the spot that I'm at, I see all these people who are worshiping in another cult, that they all have the same uniforms on, and they're all walking the same direction, and they all seem to be anxious about something, and I'm looking around, I'm like, what am I missing here? And it's like, everybody is worshiping something, right? And yet, do we as believers see that we have something so much more exciting, so much more powerful, so much more lasting, that is full of joy that we can have, as opposed to the world around us that are worshiping all these temporary things, that are putting their self-worth in the performance of 20 and 30-year-olds playing, uh, throwing a ball around, right? Jesus, again, healed out of mercy and love. I've had some conversations with some of you about this that I, I'm just so curious, like, as a church, if what happened to Matt is true, we don't have to go very far to experience spiritual warfare and to engage the spiritual forces to be able to pray or to know how we can even help in a way uh, that knows that it's not from our own effort, but it's a spiritual matter that some who are in bondage, that we would have compassion unlike these villagers. You only need to go to the Roosevelt CTA red line stop, right? And yet, how, how many of us think of how we can help, how we can pray, how we can be a light in this community? Do we desire to be with him? As I close, do we desire to be with him before we even tell others about him? Do we try to tell others about Jesus from our own strength or out of pride or out of guilt without being healed by him first? Without remembering that we ourselves were beasts who had received mercy and have been healed, that we now have Jesus as our treasure over this world, that we don't take shortcuts to evangelism, but that we first, like this man, that, that salvation is not just a one-time thing in the sense that there is sanctification, that there is a growing process, that after we're saved, there is continual transformation. It's not one time, and that ultimately, we want to be people who beg to be with Jesus. Please pray with me.